I am going to be reading all of 1 Samuel chapter 19, which starts on page 291, and then reading a part of 1 Samuel chapter 20. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what has he done, what he has done, has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Once more, war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul, and he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand while David was playing the lyre. Saul tried to pin him, pin, the wall, pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal let David down through, through a window and he fled and escaped. Then Michal took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. Then David fled from... Sorry, now we're in 1 Samuel 20. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favourably disposed towards you, will I not send word to you and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. 
keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to that, but just before we do a quick pause, Debbie is going to lead the children into their little corner of the room, and uh, they'll learn the Bible there, the same passage, the same lessons. Um, and uh, you are the B team, and you're stuck with me. So, we're going to be learning from the Bible together. And we've prayed. Thank you, Natalie, for reading. I uh, hope you've got a Bible somewhere to hand. And we will begin. If you're sitting comfortably, uh, I think that's how the story goes. Well, let me start by making you think through a question. How will God be good to you if you follow him? In other words, how much good would you expect coming your way if God was on, his side, on your side? Now, it's very interesting that Christians give opposite answers to that question. Some will tell you, expect nothing but good. Prosperity, perfect health, after all, God is good, expect the best. Others will say, hmm, expect the worst. Jesus said, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. It's not going to be a bed of roses. Ah, you say, you know what the answer is then. If it's not at either extreme, it must be somewhere in the middle. Expect a bit of good and expect a bit of bad. Cut the difference. But I'm going to tell you from this little bit of the Bible that actually it's helpful to expect both ends of the spectrum. Okay? And I'm going to show you how you can expect good. You will see God's glory if you follow Jesus. It may not be pennies from heaven, but you will see God's glory. But you will see it in an unusual way. We're going to start off by saying something that uh, you won't uh, have uh, thought about very much. But bad things happen to good people. That's one thing we learn from this part of the Bible. So chapter 19 starts with uh, the senior staff meeting around the king. And King Saul gives the order that uh, David must be killed. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. Now, if you were here last week, or even the chapter before that, you see that actually David was Saul's best ally, his best friend, his best asset. And yet, the more good that David does for Saul, it seems, the more Saul hates David. But he has done good for Saul. So David is the one who's actually benefited Saul. And Jonathan tells his dad that in verses 4 and 5. Jonathan, uh, in, in uh, verse 4, spoke well of David to Saul. His father said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it, and you were glad. 
And it seems actually that Jonathan's confidence in David, looking back, is proved again in this chapter because you see that David goes out and leads Saul's army in verse 8 to yet another victory. And then in verse 9, he's playing calming music while Saul is having another one of his turns. But even at that moment in time, his um, concern to help Saul, at that moment in time as an unarmed musician, gives Saul the chance to see if he can kill him in verse 10. Throws his spear at him to try and pin him uh, to the wall. And when that fails... He gives orders for David to be dragged out of his sickbed to be brought to Saul and killed uh, then in verse 15. Bring him up to me in his bed so I might kill him. And when that fails, he gives orders for assassins to go and find out David in his hiding place in verse 18. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samit Ramah and uh, told him all that Saul had done to him. Um, and then word came to Saul in verse 19, David is in Nereth in Ramah, so he sent men to capture him. And when that fails, he eventually goes himself in verse 22. In other words, he's wanting bad things to happen to a good man. And that's because the strange, perverse way we are is that the good things that we do draws out the bad in people. And that was certainly true in the time of David's greater descendant, who is Jesus. You remember, we've been learning in the Bible that David, if you like, is the Messiah of the Old Testament. He is there to help us to get ready for Jesus, who's going to be the Messiah in the New Testament. So David's a bit of a kind of a, a shadow of what's to come. And what happened to David? The good that he did, attracting bad, is exactly what happened to Jesus. Well, I've got to show you that. So uh, I'm going to ask you to uh, flick forward to uh, Mark's Gospel. I'll tell you the page number when I get there. I'm slow. That means you've got lots of time. Okay? So Mark chapter 3 is on page 1005. Page 1005. Actually, page 1004. You can see Mark chapter 3 from page 1005, but it's on page 1004. And let me read to you the first uh, six verses. Uh, Jesus doing good and bad coming his way. Another time, chapter 3, verse 1. Another time, Jesus went to the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so he watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. 
He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. You see? Uh, he's out to do good and he says, now come on, which is it right to do good or bad? To kill or to give life? Uh, and on the Sabbath, he gives life and they plot to kill. Now, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because the matches are worth noticing here. First, opposition is at a high level. Uh, they're plotting with the Herodians. Now, Herodians are the king's uh, close uh, people. Uh, Herod was the king. So first, it's opposition at high level, same as with David. Second, oppositions at a very early stage. Hey, we're only in chapter 3 of Mark's Gospel. Jesus only just arrived on the scene, and they're beginning to plot to kill him at this stage. Same with David. Uh, David's actually only been around for three chapters himself when we get to chapter 19. We didn't meet him until chapter 16. And now they're plotting to kill him too. <clears throat> but what was true of Jesus is going to be true of his followers as well. Do good, and you will bring out the worst in people. It's a strange thing, isn't it, to hear anybody say that. And yet the evidence is there. There's a Christian nurse who prayed for one of her patients because she wanted God to do more for this person than even she could. And she gets fired from her job. There are Christian adoption agencies who have wonderfully helped hundreds of children who have been shut down because of the politically correct agenda of those who watch over these things these days don't like what they believe. And there are Christian schools who this year have been particularly targeted by Ofsted. They do excellent work make high-achieving children, wonderfully serve their communities. But they don't dot all the I's and cross all the T's of the gay agenda. So they're targeted. The good brings out the worst. And that's why Peter, who is a disciple of Jesus, uh, makes it clear that the good will bring out the worst. Uh, I won't let you turn it up... I'll just read it to you from the screen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that they, although they accuse you of wrongdoing, uh, of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify you on the day he visits us. Can you see? Good deeds, but they will accuse you of wrongdoing. The two go together. But when Jesus comes back, uh, they will see that uh, what he did was nothing but good. And you can understand why bad things happen to good people from this chapter. It is because David in this chapter is good to Saul. It exposes Saul's obsession to hang on to power at all costs. Goodness holds a mirror to a selfish world, 
to show how selfish it is. And that's why God's people love and serve and get hated for it, but continue loving and serving when bad things happen to good people. That seems to be what we see in this uh, uh, part of the Bible. Another thing we see, the second point, is that bad things happen to show us God is glorious. For another way, you won't see God's glory unless bad things happen. Let me say what I mean by that. Because good things may bring out the worst in people, but let me tell you, it does bring the best out of God. And you see that in chapter 19, when Saul is out to kill David again and again and again, and God gets him out of harm's way again and again and again. And here, there's a bigger picture too. It's not just David that is having his hand uh, helped by God, but actually, it's a bigger picture. And there's a part of the Bible uh, that is called Psalms. And in Psalm 2, it is just uh, interesting uh, to read the whole thing. Um, uh, You might feel you're getting overdose here, but uh, the Bible actually is worth holding together uh, when it says things that hold together. Psalm 2, again, if you want to follow it, it's on page 543, but I'll read it to you. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I'll proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, what you're seeing in Psalm 2 is what's happening in 1 Samuel 19. You've got Saul rising up against God and his anointed. David is God's anointed king and Saul is rising up against him to try and stop that happening. And what Psalm 2 says is God laughs at those efforts. The only time in the Bible it actually tells you God finds something funny. But he finds it really funny when people try to stop him doing what he wants to do. Now, no one's laughing in verse 10 when the, sword, when, the, when the spear 
comes crashing into the wall, just missing it. And no one's laughing in verse 12 when David has got to jump out the window and run for his life. Okay, if you were in his shoes, you wouldn't be laughing either. You wouldn't be feeling more tense than you could at moments like that. But if you look at it in hindsight, the smile begins to come, doesn't it? After all, the spear is in the wall, not in David. The rest party capture an idol, not their victim. The hired assassins that are sent out to get David end up prophesying and preaching. And amazingly, the king who wants to hang on to his great glory and majesty ends up on the ground naked in verse 24. It does make you smile, doesn't it? What happens? when people try and rise up against the Lord and his anointed. But I tell you, smile now, looking back. But you will laugh when you look forward and you begin to see in the fullness of time when you meet God and he puts on his television screen how it's always like that and it's like that all the time with everyone. And we laugh when we see that God is glorious when people oppose him. Okay? So if you want to see how glorious God is at the time of Moses in the Old Testament, look at the time Pharaoh, the king at that stage, was trying to stop him getting out of Egypt. God just grabs the whole of uh, Pharaoh's army, bundles them into the sea and drowns them. Uh, you want to see how God is glorious? Look at the time Saul is trying to stop David and see him fail. You want to see God is glorious? Look at what they tried to do to stop Jesus. Now I might say actually they made a quite good job of it, didn't they? Did, did they kill him? Well yes they did. But if you see what he was doing, even at the time Jesus was uh, uh, on the cross and uh, dying, well, look at uh, uh, Acts chapter two, uh, Acts chapter four, and this is. Uh, uh, I, am I going to take this? Is the last one I'm going to ask you to look at? Um, I'll bribe you by saying that. Uh, sorry, Acts chapter four. Ah, forget the two. It's Acts chapter four. Verses 25 to 28. Where's spotted Rona? Now, here's the interesting thing. Um, hi. Uh, we'll uh, get a chair for you somewhere. How many? Two, four, six. We have six chairs there. Uh, thank you, Natalie. That's typical, isn't it? The bloke carries two chairs and the woman takes four. <laughs> Mind you, she is bigger than him. Okay, uh, grab a seat. We'll tell you the website uh, later so you can catch the bit that you missed. Okay, 
Uh, Veroni, it's all right. Just uh, grab a seat. Uh, we'll, we'll do the best we can. Okay. As I said, even when Jesus died, you see God glorified in the bad thing that happened. So in Acts chapter 4, verses uh, 25 onwards, uh, remember they're quoting Psalm 2. Okay? And uh, Psalm 2 says, uh, in, verse, in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Heard that one before? Yes, yeah, Psalm 2. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. But they only did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Okay? So, um, uh, yeah, they seem to win. But even at that moment in time, they didn't win. Opposing God always brings the best out of him. And you see him at his best when you are in your biggest moments of bother and uh, trouble. Now, we need to have that confidence today that no one succeeds against God's servants. In fact, David uh, wrote another psalm, as well as Psalm 2. He wrote another psalm, Psalm 34, verse 7, where he said this, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Guys, this is you. If you follow Jesus, and if you serve him, it's not then David. It is all those who fear him. And the angel of the Lord is there to make sure that the schemes of those who want to put you down because you're a Christian, that they always backfire and uh, don't uh, come to anything. <clears throat> I'm not saying that bad stuff won't happen. David is not having a good time in 1 Samuel 19. We've seen that. But when bad things happen, they only happen to show you that your God is glorious. And looking back on what has happened to you on the bad days, even in this life, <coughs> you will probably begin to see how it's working out and you begin to smile. But while you're doing that here, looking back, let me tell you, if you look forward to the future, one day you will do nothing but laugh at the way God has been at his most awesome, achieving much more in the hard days you've gone through for his credit and for his glory. So, bad things happen to show us God's glory. It would be good if someone could turn off that phone.
uh, and uh, we'll get on with the third point, which is that seeing God's glory brings out commitment to serve him. And we see that with uh, Jonathan, especially in chapter 20. So, 1 Samuel, chapter 20, and you see that's the effect it has on Jonathan when he sees that David is God's glorious Messiah who has the future in his hands. Now, the chapter starts with uh, with David having to help Jonathan to see that his dad really hates David. Remember how at the start, in chapter 19, Saul told Jonathan, all right, I'm not going to hurt David. So now Jonathan thinks that's going to be all right. He may not have known about all the attempts that have been made on David's life. So David has to say, Jonathan, your dad means this. He is out to kill me. He has to help his friend to understand that uh, his, his dad is not on his side. And so Jonathan realises that means he has got to make a choice. And so therefore, if you look at chapter 20, verse 9, you see how uh, uh, Jonathan sides with David if that's what it has to come to. Never, Jonathan said, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, I would tell you. In other words, against my father. Now, that leads him in verses 13 to 17 to make a covenant because David is God's king and now he knows that. So in chapter 20, verse 13, he says, But if my father intends to harm you, May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I don't let you know and send you away in peace. Now, I'm going to thwart the plans of my father at this point. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. In other words, you're going to be king the same way he is. But show me unfailing kindness, like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And don't cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. What he's really saying is, I'm on your side, David. And even if my father tries to kill you, I will make sure you get away in safety. And I want you to be on my side when you become king. I know that all your enemies are going to be cut off. I don't want to be one of them on that day. And I don't want my family to be one of them on that day. So I'm making a covenant with you, David, to always be on your side. Now, guys, that is the only response to make if God has got a king who is going to run the future. There are only two options you can see in this part of the Bible. Either make a covenant to be on his side for the rest of your life, or you will try and kill off his influence on your life. 
Those are the only two options. Covenant or kill. But it ends with Jonathan making a covenant. And he does that uh, wonderfully saying goodbye to David and uh, affectionately kissing him in friendship in verse 41. Uh, uh, They kissed each other, wept together, but David wept the most. And Jonathan kissed his friend. Now, this isn't homosexuality. People say that uh, David and Jonathan were gay, and that's why they had this great love for each other. Okay? Let me tell you, there are lots of kisses in this part of the Bible. You read uh, 2 Samuel, and you see quite a few of them, and a couple of them, um, the kisses were actually at the time the person who was doing the kissing was actually going to stick a knife into the person they were kissing and they were kissing them to get them off guard we'll get to those stories later kissing goes on it doesn't always mean friendship but here it means friendship and it means something more because we've just read Psalm 2 kiss the Lord while he is favourable and uh, be uh, his friend. And that's what Jonathan does too. And very interestingly, in, Psalm 40, uh, in verse 41 in chapter 20, same time of the kiss, uh, it's interesting to watch David. David bows down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Can you see, Jonathan's not serving a king who's going to dominate him. He's serving a king who's going to be wonderfully uh, honouring him himself so we're never going to be committing ourselves to a King Jesus who dominates us we're committing ourselves to someone who will serve us even putting his own life in front of ours so keep Jonathan in mind covenant or kill but that will help you to understand what it means to say you've got to take one side or the other. That is actually what Jesus means when in uh, Luke chapter 14 verse 26 he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, just keep Jonathan and Saul in mind. Jonathan did not hate his father in any evil way. In fact, if you look at chapter 19, verse 4, he talks to his father full of respect. He calls him, my king. In other words, he is honouring him as much as he possibly could. He's not stroppy. But he does understand that making a covenant with David will put him offside with his father. That's what Jesus means. If we make covenants with uh, God's anointed king, we are automatically going to be offside with those who don't and who oppose him instead. So what's the take home for us uh, in all of this, for ourselves? Uh, Let me tell you, 
that uh, if uh, you're new to Christianity and you're new to church and you live on our estate and either you're here or you're listening to this on our website let me say that it's a simple thing to simply focus on the way Jonathan treated David. Read these chapters again for yourself and understand that how Jonathan treated David is really the brilliant way we are called to treat Jesus. Sometimes when people say, what's it mean to be a Christian? We can answer by saying, well, you start by praying that Jesus will forgive you. Well, fair enough. But the big message is, make a covenant. Make a covenant to follow him and serve him for the rest of your life. That's what Jonathan did. That's what Psalm 2 says more than anything else. Get on his side and live there for the rest of your life. Never think that there is a neutral, well, I won't jump one way or the other option. Not to make a covenant is effectively to say, I will not recognize the king that God has put in front of me, who will be my king in the future. If you don't choose Jonathan, you will be Saul. Covenant or kill. Make the choice wisely. Secondly, what happens if you are churchy? In other words, you've been to church before and you call yourself one of God's people and you've had spiritual gifts given to you. You've spoken in tongues, you've prophesied, you've even maybe preached. Hold on. Didn't Saul do that in chapter 19? And one of the most confusing things is I question at the end of Psalm 19... uh, 1 Samuel 19 is Saul amongst the prophets in other words is he really God's man I'm confused now and let me tell you that it is a great confusion that will completely baffle you if you look at a person's gifting and think they belong to God Um, that is to look at Saul at that moment in time and say he's God's man when he is anti-God as much as uh, any other tyrant in history. Take this word seriously because I remember knocking on the door of someone on our estate and uh, actually she got our letter saying that we were coming that Sunday and so she was very happy to see, see me and we were chatting and she was really in distress she said, I want to talk to you about something she said I go to VPA church which stands I think for Victoria's Pentecostal Assembly uh, it's the largest uh, church they reckon on the website in our borough 5,000 people go there and uh, this uh, lady was saying she was really distressed because the pastor of that church had <coughs> divorced his wife uh, to marry a younger model um, and in public would insult his wife 
and his children from her, who still attend that church and were part of that congregation. And it broke this lady that I was talking to, it broke her heart to see it happening week after week. And I said, well, why do you go? And she said, ah, but he has such an anointing. Now, when we go for such an anointing and make our, get our meter reading from there, we're going to be in the ballpark following Saul, who had such an anointing. And, my friends, we'll end up following the wrong leaders. And that is why black Pentecostalism in Africa and in England is in such a mess. Because they go for the charismatic figure and they don't actually watch the godliness of their lives. And yet, they promise wonderful wealth, wonderful health. But when you actually put them next to good, it brings out the bad. When you put them in front of a wife, who is faithful and continuing in church with her husband, albeit I think in this case naively, it brings out the worst in the husband. And so um, uh, he starts insulting her. Ah, the good brings out the bad. And we need to be uh, clued up about that uh, if we're ever near a church. So then, how or where will you look to see God at his best? The answer is, see how God's goodness was revealed in David and especially in Jesus in the hard times that they went through. You see, David wasn't free from hardship. But he saw how glorious God was in the middle of hardship. So I want you, believer, to take home that amazing assurance that David wants you to have. From Psalm 34, verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. I want you to never, ever forget that. But please don't detach verse 7 from the verse that comes in front of it. The verse in front of it says, This poor man called, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. In other words, it's a troublesome life when you're following Jesus. But it is in that situation that he will find God gloriously delivering. So keep yourself joyful. You might be in trouble tonight. You might be thinking that it's going to be hard following Jesus and keeping going at that. But let me tell you that God will choose to show you how glorious he is, not by pennies from heaven coming into your lap, but by putting you in trouble. So you call out to him and then see that God doesn't run out of options when he comes to saving his people. Let's pray and we'll take questions.
after that. Father in heaven, we live in a perverse world where we do good and then experience evil. Uh, Please help us never to grow weary in doing good, confident that we'll see you at your best when we're experiencing life at its worst. Keep us joyful and trusting and calling on you in the day of trouble so that we might see you saving us out of all our afflictions. And we pray for that angel to camp around us for the glory of your great name. Amen.